Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Um, Before we begin with this evening's presentations, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to uh, the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. Uh, and as we are listening to uh, stories about the past in this area, uh, we should also kind of embrace and pay respect to um, the knowledge of the traditional owners of, of the land that we meet upon. Um, so I'm James Flexner from the archaeology department here at the University of Sydney. Uh, and I'd like to introduce a really exciting panel of um, three speakers. Um, but before I do that, I want what I, I want to explain sort of what we're doing. So the reason the the one thing I want you all to take away from uh, this talk is that archaeology is not pyramids and buried treasure or dusty old things that don't matter anymore. Rather, archaeology uh, offers us answers to really essential and really pressing questions in terms of thinking about how we live on this planet. Um, And so the three speakers are going to talk about um, the relationship between people and the environment at three different timescales. The first speaker, uh, Stephen Gale, will talk about a very big timescale of tens of thousands of years. Uh, The second speaker, who is uh, Katie Wu, uh, is going to talk about a kind of medium timescale, at least as archaeologists are concerned, of thousands of years of environmental adaptation uh, in the far north. Uh, And then our final speaker, uh, Tim Owen, is going to talk about things on um, a relatively small scale of a few decades or perhaps even a few years, right around the time that the first Europeans arrived in Sydney. Um, and so while they're th- sort of speaking, I want everyone to consider how these uh, kind of how the evidence for uh, the adaptation of indigenous and non-indigenous Australians to uh, what can at times be a challenging environment can cu- give us some material for reflecting upon and thinking about our own time and our own relationships to our environment. So, without any more from me, uh, I'd like to introduce Stephen, uh, and I will get out of the way. Okay, on the uh, the southeast edge of the Australian continent lies a broad geological depression, bounded to the north, to the south, and to the west by sandstone uplands, and to the east by the sea. This feature, which is known as the, the Cumberland Basin, we can see it here, is almost entirely occupied by the city of Sydney and its various satellites and suburbs. Now, the basin itself is the product of uh, geological processes operating over tens of millions of years that uplifted the surrounding blocks and that locally downwarped the, the Cumberland Plain. But if we focus on the most recent episode of Earth history, the Quaternary, which began about two and a half million years ago, the agent that has driven shifts in environmental conditions and that continues to control the large scale patterns of environmental variation is climatic change. Of particular importance in this are those changes that arise from variations in the orbital geometry of the Earth as it moves around the Sun. And these alter the timing and the location of solar radiation receipt throughout the year. With the result that over the course of the Quaternary, 
the Earth has experienced a succession of warmer and cooler episodes, known as interglacials and glacials, over timescales of tens and hundreds of thousands of years. So we see here a record of quaternary climatic change derived from the sediments of the deep oceans. It shows a sequence of changes in global ice volume, and thus, of course, of global temperature, and reveals that over the 2.6 million years of the quaternary, there have been, so far at least, 106 glacial interglacial cycles. Now, in order to consider the consequences of these changes, both for the landscape itself and for the people who occupy that landscape, I want to concentrate in particular on the latest cycle of glacials and interglacials. That's a period of perhaps 115,000 years. And this is a time that includes the present warm period, sometimes referred to as the Holocene, and the preceding cold period, often referred to as the last ice age, although as we can see from this, it's really only part of a much longer series of cold episodes. Now, this choice is made partly because the evidence for this period is much better preserved than that of earlier times, and therefore the story is, is much more complete. But it's also because it's the period during which there's been a human presence in Australia. Understanding this episode, therefore, provides us with a backdrop to understanding human activity in the landscape. Now, in taking this approach, I want to focus in particular on three elements of the physical landscape, in part at least, because of their consequences for human activity. And these are, first of all, the coast, and particularly the effects of changing sea levels. Secondly, rivers, and the impacts of climate on their behaviour. And finally, sand deserts. So, let's begin with the coast then. Now, although elsewhere in the world, other impacts dominate. In Australia, perhaps the most dramatic consequence of quaternary climatic change has been its effect on sea level. And the story goes something like this. As the earth cools with the onset of glacial conditions, snow begins to accumulate at high latitude and high altitude. It forms ice caps and glaciers. The growth of these ice sheets removes water from the liquid part of the hydrological system and preserves it on land in a solid form. Now, since the major source of liquid water on Earth is the oceans, the result is a massive fall in sea levels. By contrast, as the Earth enters an interglacial state, the reverse process occurs. The ice melts, water is reintroduced to the oceans, and the result is that global sea levels have oscillated over time by between 100 and 150 metres in phase with global climatic change, with sea levels falling slowly into glacial maxima and rising dramatically quickly with the onset of the succeeding interglacial. Now, if we focus on the last interglacial glacial cycle, sea levels reached their lowest point around 20,000 years ago, when waters were perhaps 134 metres below those of the present. With deglaciation, sea levels rose rapidly at rates of perhaps one and a half 
meters a century for several millennia until they reached close to their modern levels about 8,000 years ago. Okay, then what were the consequences of all these changes for the Cumberland Basin? Well, first of all, the low sea levels of glacial times resulted in the expansion of the land area of the continent and the exposure of land bridges that linked offshore islands to the mainland. Around Australia, the rising sea levels during the deglacial phase resulted in the submersion of Bass Strait about 12 or 13,000 years ago and the severing of the, the last links between Australia and New Guinea about 9,000 years ago. Now, in the case of the Cumberland Basin, the impact wasn't quite so dramatic. And part of the reason for that is that offshore of Sydney, the continental shelf, as we can see here, is amongst the narrowest and the steepest in the world. And as a result, the last glacial maximum coastline would have lain probably no more than a dozen kilometres east of its present position. So the orange area that you can see on the slide here represents the lands offshore of the Cumberland Basin that were exposed during glacial maximum times. Secondly, as the area at the edge of the continent expanded, the rivers that drained the Cumberland Basin would have extended their courses to the new coastline. They would have entrenched valleys across the new continental shelf. And we can trace the resultant bedrock valleys offshore, where they extend to depths of often more than 100 metres below modern sea levels. So here we see an example offshore of the, uh, the Hawkesbury. And we can see from the, the, the numbers on, on the figure that uh, the, the, the paleo channels of the Hawkesbury were entrenched to depths of over 150 metres below the modern datum. Now, as sea levels rose at the end of the last coal stage, these channels would have been infilled, they would have been buried, with most of their fill the product of the latest phase of sedimentation, that of the Holocene. Meanwhile, the rising sea levels would also have drowned the glacial stage fluvial landscape that had been excavated across the continental shelf, forming deeply fretted inlets that, that are characteristic of the, the bedrock coast the Cumberland Basin. So these features that you see here, very typical of what we see along coastal Sydney, they're essentially drowned valleys that date from glacial maximum times. Finally, one of the most notable features of the coast are the shore platforms that are developed close to or just above the modern sea level. And these are backed by, by sea cliffs that are actually 90 metres high. Now it's tempting to ascribe features such as this to coastal erosion during the last 8,000 years of relative sea level stability. However, to the south in the Illawarra, we find evidence of pre-Holocene deposits and weathering crusts on top of very similar shore platforms, suggesting that there at least the features must date from at least the last interglacial. And the same is likely to be the case for Sydney's coasts with the cliffs and the shore platforms probably representing ancient landforms that have been reoccupied by Holocene sea levels. Okay, sea levels reached their lowest point in the last interglacial cycle about 20,000 years ago. We know that the broader Sydney region was occupied by people at this time, but the few sites for which we have information by far inland, and it's likely the overall population at that time was low. 
On the other hand, it's hard to believe that people wouldn't have exploited the resources found along the contemporary coastal and estuarine zones. But unfortunately, so far, we've no direct evidence of this. Nevertheless, there are stories, for instance, from the Darrell people, whose traditional lands extend from south of Port Jackson to the Shoalhaven River, of the occupation of the seacoast at a time when the coastline was no, located no more than walking distance east of its present position. As sea levels increased after the last glacial maximum, the rising waters would have forced any coastal groups to move progressively west as their lands became submerged. Now, we've already pointed out that the, uh, the continental shelf offshore of the Cumberland Basin is amongst the narrowest and most precipitous in the world. Yet even along its steepest parts, the coastline would have migrated inland at rates approaching half a metre a year. And elsewhere, the rates could easily have been double that. Increases of this magnitude must have been apparent to those people who experienced the changes. And again, the Darwell tales of coastal peoples fleeing inland to escape the flooding of Botany Bay, with the floods destroying lands used for food gathering, may have had their origin in this event. Okay, let's move now to consider the rivers of the Cumberland Basin. Now, except in those places where they're confined by bedrock, the, the modern rivers of the, the Cumberland Basin form sinuous, single-thread alluvial channels, mainly transporting loads of fine sediment. But things were very different in the past. Along the Nepean, for instance, we see evidence of the movement of cobbles and boulders through complex multi-thread braided channel systems developed over the entire valley bottom, with individual channels constantly shifting their location across the floodplain. And at these times, the river must have looked rather like those draining the, the Southern Alps in the South Island of New Zealand. The coarse materials transported by the Nepean under those conditions have been largely retained in the valley, with ancient floodplains retained as flights of terraces on either side of the river. Again, probably comparable to those that we see here along the edges of the Waimakariri. Now, dates on these features along the Nepean show evidence of an alternation in river activity, with three flood-dominated epochs. The first one between about 115 and 70,000 years ago, the second between about 60 and 40,000 years ago, and the third having formed in the period between about 20 and 10,000 years ago. Now, unfortunately, there's little comparable work that's been done on other rivers in the basin. Nevertheless, there has been some work done on the lower terrace of the Parramatta River, and those dates appear to coincide with the second of the Nepean events suggesting that this alternation in river activity is not something that's confined to a single system, but it's likely to represent a basin-wide phenomenon. Now, it's been suggested that this pattern of deposition is linked to changes in sea level. But if that were the case, the phases of sedimentation would have occurred during times of higher sea levels, with the episodes of incision confined to times of lower sea levels. But that's demonstrably not the case. Sea levels, for example, were consistently low between about 80,000 and about 15,000 years ago. And yet this period encompasses 
three episodes of sediment accumulation, not to mention two episodes of, of non-deposition. Instead, this deposition seems to represent a response to changes in climate, and particularly to episodes of aridity and moisture availability across Southeast Australia. So there is, for example, a close correspondence between the episodes of coarse sedimentation in the Cumberland Basin and the phases of fluvial sedimentation identified on the Riverine Plain of southwest New South Wales. And that's suggestive of a broad regional response to patterns of moisture availability. In addition, there's a direct relationship between episodes of accumulation of wind-blown deposits, so these are the, the orange and, uh, and buff colours on, on the graph. They're normally regarded as indicators of arid conditions. So there's a, a close relationship between those episodes of deposition and the phases of non-deposition in the river. Again, suggestive of a response to changes in moisture balance. Now, on the face of it, these terraces might appear to be pretty minor phenomena. But there's a strong argument that they were of critical importance for human activity across the basin. Most obviously, of course, they provided access to reliable water supplies. But the terrace deposits are also likely to have been much more fertile than the thin, nutrient-poor soils of the sandstone lands of the rest of the Cumberland Basin. And they almost certainly supported a wider range of biological and physical resources than those offered by the rest of the region. And we can see this from the distribution of glacial age archaeological sites across the region, which are almost invariably found on or adjacent to the terrace deposits. Now, unfortunately, and it's fairly clear from the, the slide, the number of sites involved here is pretty small. And some of them also possess credibility issues. And it might be argued that this pattern is no more than an artifact of the favorable conditions of site preservation offered by the terraces. On the other hand, if we take Val Attenborough's massive compilation of the several thousand Aboriginal sites so far identified in the basin, it's difficult to ignore the clustering of these features along the main drainage lines of the region. So along the, the Nepean, the Hawkesbury, south and eastern creeks, Cutai Creek and Parramatta River, and down here in the southeast, the Georges, Warrenora and Hacking Rivers. The attraction of the river terraces was also obvious to the occupants of the new colony of New South Wales, desperately searching for sites suitable to grow crops to support the, the growing outpost of empire. As we all know, the, the colony came very close to starvation in its first few years. Its crops failed, its stock ran away, and it rapidly depleted the resources in the immediate vicinity of Port Jackson. A succession of governors encouraged any effort to farm, and it was soon recognised that the terrace lands offered suitable conditions for agriculture. Experimental farms were established on the terraces of the, the Parramatta River, and similar situations across the basin were quickly exploited. And the result was that by 1826, the agriculturalist James Atkinson was able to observe that uh, the greater part of the alluvial lands upon the Hawkesbury and the Pean have been cleared and are under cultivation. Unfortunately, this takeover of land occurred at the expense of the displacement of the existing population. And it's no surprise that most of the acts of aggression between the colonists and the original peoples in the first decades of colonization were focused 
on those areas of alluvial sediment that were critical to both groups. So, Stephen Gap's Sydney Wars of 1788 to 1817 were ones that were fought over resources and access to land, and access to a landscape that was itself the product of climatic change. Okay, finally, sand deserts. Now, despite the occasional dry spell, most of us would probably regard coastal southeast Australia as an essentially humid environment. It's characterized by rivers and woodlands and a positive moisture balance. Yet along the humid margins of the continent, there are significant areas dominated by aeolian activity in which windblown sands and dusts mold the landscape and dictate human response to the environment. Now, one of the most important examples of such a landscape lies only a few kilometers from us here in the university. And it's a feature known as the, the Botany Basin, a structural depression within the bedrock extending from Centennial Park in the north to beyond Port Hacking in the south, and infilled by thick accumulations of windblown sands. Now, the, the Botany Basin is in, in many ways a forgotten land. It's a place on the fringes of the more glamorous metropolis where undesirable industries and other land uses could be located at a suitable distance from the city. As a result, although the, the landscape of the Botany Basin is dominated by large-scale windblown dunes, we only get to see them occasionally. And throughout much of the basin, they're obscured by suburban sprawl and industrialization. Now, these windblown deposits are known as the Botany Sands. And although attempts have been made to date these deposits for several decades, it's only in the last few years that we've had sufficient data to say anything meaningful, both about them and about the environmental history that they reveal. So what I've done here, and I hope this isn't too complicated a diagram, but it, I've tried to compile all the chronological information that we have on the Botany Sands. So let's focus to begin with on this bottom panel. The dates that we see here represent the time of initial deposition of the sands. And we can see from this that the Botany Sands began accumulating at least 35,000 years ago, and that their deposition continued until at least 10,000 years ago. Now, if we move to the middle panel, this shows the dates obtained from soils and other organic materials that overlie the sands. And what these dates represent is the timing of the stabilization of the dunes and the development of a binding vegetation cover. So soils developed on top of the sands. So after this time, sand migration no longer occurs and the dune systems become inactive. And this episode seems to begin about uh, 11, 10,000 years ago, but it's a far from synchronous basin-wide event. And in some parts of the basin, stabilization doesn't take place until as late as the last few centuries. Finally, if we look at the, uh, the dates in the upper panel, they summarize the results obtained from interbeds of soils and other organic material that occur within the sand. So these are where we've got soils that are buried by sand. Now again, the organic material must represent an episode of dune stabilization with the formation of thin soils and the stabilizing vegetation cover. 
In these cases, though, the episode of stability hasn't been maintained. And the soils have been buried by sands as the system has been reactivated and as the dunes have been remobilized. Now, this process of reworking and burial of the soils seems to have taken place consistently since the first soils appeared about 10 or 11,000 years ago and has continued right up to the present day. In many ways, therefore, the picture of increasing stability presented by the dates in the middle panel is illusory. And we can see instead there's been a continuing history of disturbance and mobilization of the land surface. Okay, a land surface dominated by desert dunes and mobile sand belts is likely to have offered very few attractions for human exploitation. And it's no surprise, therefore, that the earliest evidence for occupation in the Botany Basin, but a suite of dates here, doesn't occur until after 11,000 years ago, immediately after the first evidence for land surface stabilization. But as we've seen, the dunes continue to be remobilized and land surfaces buried throughout the Holocene, a process that has probably continued to the present day. So the landscape of the basin probably remained relatively unattractive to human use, and perhaps unsurprisingly, away from those parts of the basin that lie adjacent to the coast, there's actually very little evidence for human use of the landscape, as you can see from this scatter of sites across the, the Botany Basin. Okay, just a, a few words in, in conclusion. The initial occupation of the Cumberland Basin took place in the context of dramatic environmental change, with the Earth emerging from a long episode of glaciation. Those first occupants experienced temperature changes at a pace unprecedented, even in a world of human-induced climatic variation. They faced rights of sea level rise of over a metre a century until seas approached modern levels about 8,000 years ago. And they experienced dynamic, fluvial and aeolian conditions with major episodes of erosion and deposition that dramatically reworked the landscapes, the rivers and the sand sheets. Even during the Holocene, dunes continued to be remobilized and land surfaces buried, a process that has continued to the present day. In each case, these large scale environmental shifts were driven by major cycles of climatic change, themselves a product of changes in the Earth's orbital geometry. Now, when I was asked to give this presentation, I was told that I should stress the implications of the archeological record for human response to future environmental change. It's unclear, however, whether we can use the changes of the past as an analog for the predicted human-induced changes of the future. Now, in part, this is because human impacts are likely to take place over far shorter timescales than those of the major cycles that I've discussed. But perhaps more significant is the fact that the operation of the long-term climatic cycles of the Quaternary appears to be dependent on apparently minor triggering mechanisms. And it's not at all clear that human factors will not compromise the delicate operation of these processes with the result, for example, that the anticipated descent of the Earth into glacial conditions is permanently arrested. Thanks very much. Okay, good evening, everybody. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered here tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. 
But I'd also like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners about the sites that I'm going, who are the owners of the sites that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. The Mirror. It's their story I'm going to tell you tonight, and it's from their ancestors' actions that we're going to learn about how we could possibly use archaeology to help us future-proof against climate change. Okay, so climate change is one of the biggest issues that we as a species are currently facing. And one of the main impacts that is drilled into us is sea level rise, right? So the recent studies by the IPCC, so this is an independent board of scientists who have got together to study climate change specifically, they've indicated that sea levels have been rising steadily over the past years. And if we continue along the trajectory that we're on, sea levels are likely to rise anywhere between 52 to 98 centimetres in the next 80 years. This is a significant rise in sea level, and it's going to significantly impact the landscapes that we're occupying and living on. Now, in, in addition to this, we've got them predicting that we're going to move into a more unstable climatic period we're going to have more severe weather events happening. Droughts, severe storms. These are things which are going to impact our landscapes and impact the ways that we operate as societies. Now, it's easy to think that this is the first time that this has happened, but as we've seen from Stephen Stork, it's not. Throughout um, humanity's existence, we've had fluctuations in global conditions. We've had warming and cooling periods, and with that, we've had fluctuations in sea levels. And this has significantly impacted the landscapes that humans have interacted with and lived on. And we've survived, haven't we? We're here today. So what we can do with archaeology is we can look at how these past groups interacted with large-scale environmental change, and we can see how we might be able to apply what they did today. We can learn from their actions, their mistakes, their successes. So the period I'm going to be talking about is that last period of large-scale environmental change that Stephen was talking about, the transition from the Pleistocene into the Holocene. So the Pleistocene was that last ice age. This is when we had those very cold, arid conditions. So when sea levels were dramatically lower. And then as sea surfers, as we transitioned into the Holocene and we had increases in sea surface temperatures, sea levels rose, and this is that sea level um, and dramatically altered the landscapes in northern Australia. All right, so I'm going to be looking at a region in the north, and the way we're going to be looking at landscape change is through shellfish. Um, so this is usually what I start with, a rather uninspiring tray of grey, and I know that this doesn't look like it could possibly tell you anything about past climatic conditions, let alone tell us how we might survive future climate change. But just bear with me for a minute um, and let me tell you why this isn't a completely lost cause and why I'm not completely insane. So I'm something called a zoo archaeologist. What I do is I look at animal remains that are left behind in archaeological sites. And so I use them to reconstruct past subsistence practices, environmental conditions which are surrounding sites, landscape change, and how people were interacting with and influencing these environments. Now, I look at shellfish in particular. And the reason that I do this is not because I'm insane, it's because shellfish are incredibly good environmental proxies for past climatic conditions. So they're really sensitive little creatures. They don't like much change and they only exist in very narrow environmental ranges usually. So things like changes in salinity levels, changes in sea surface temperature, so water temperature, changes in the influx of sediments, 
even the presence or absence of particular um, other species, this will all impact the type of shellfish which are present in an ecosystem. So what I can do is I can look at the shellfish that are present in an archaeological assemblage. I can then go and look at the ecological and biological information that's present for them. And I can start to piece together a picture of the surrounding environments that would have occurred around these sites. And then what we can do is we can look at how this changes over a long time scale. So I'm dealing with thousands of years. That's a pretty nice time scale to see how humans were interacting with the environment, right? So we see how this shifts over time. How did the environment change? How were people responding to it? How were they influencing the environment? We can tell all of that from these shellfish remains. So it's not completely lost. We can come up with these really nice pictures about different climatic conditions and different human responses to environmental change. Okay. So these shells in particular come from a region known as the East Alligator River region. So this is the area that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. This is where we have quite a nice example of where we had a dramatic increase in sea levels, which radically changed the environment and people continued to exist and live on live in these landscapes. So it's located in the Kakadu National Park up in the Northern Territory. It's near the uranium mines, if any of you know where that is. And as you can see, it's an awful place to work. Um, this is what Kakadu looks like today. It's beautiful um, wetlands and alluvial plains. But this isn't what the environment looked like 10,000, 8,000, even 3,000 years ago. And that's all due to climate change. It's all due to rising sea levels. So let's see how people survived these environmental changes. We'll start with the Pleistocene. So as Stephen talked about, this was a period when it was cool and arid. This region was an arid interior during this period. You saw what it looks like today. In the past, it would have looked very similar to conditions that we have about 800 kilometers south of the Kakadu National Park today. So those um, open arid forests that we associate with the interior of Australia. Now, as we began to move into the Holocene, as sea surface temperatures rose, and though sea, sea surface temperatures rose and we had an increase in sea level, the silt water that came with these rising sea levels began to mingle with the river systems in the region. So we began to have salt water included into these freshwater systems. And with that, they began to evolve into brackish water swamps. So it was gradual, it wasn't sudden, but over time, these desert conditions that we saw in the region began to transform into brackish water swamps, we had a transition to closed forest as we had a switch to, um, we had a switch to warmer, wetter conditions, so we had more rain in the area. So over time, it began to evolve into these massive mangrove forests. Now, when I say massive mangrove forests, I mean these things are tens of kilometres wide and hundreds of kilometres long. They're extending up entire river systems. They're huge features on the landscape. So if you've ever been near a mangrove forest, if you ever looked at them, imagine that and times it by 40. It's a significant feature in the landscape and it's radically different to those low open forests that we were seeing in the previous period. Now, what did people do? This was a significant change. Well, when these conditions started to change over, people began to, so in the Pleistocene, they were focusing mainly on animals which were um, which were found predominantly in these arid conditions, so things like reptiles, wallabies, small mammals. 
But as the river systems began to transform into brackish water swamps and mangroves began to colonize them, people began to incorporate these new resources into these diet, into their diets, the shellfish, fish species, all things which are associated with these mangrove forests. Now, over time, as, they began, as it began to form into this dense mangrove forest and these arid conditions dropped out, people began to focus more and more and almost exclusively on these mangrove forests. But then what we had around 6,000 years was a stabilization in sea level. And with, so that means that the sea level stopped around where they were. But what we also had was an increase in sedimentation to these river systems. So mangroves are really great at catching sediment. It's what makes them really good barriers along uh, beaches. It's what stabilizes those sediments. But when you have a dramatic increase in sediment paired with their ability to capture it really effectively, it has a negative impact on these forests. And so over time, we had these forests choking up and gradually declining. And this happened over a period of 2000 years. So what did these groups do then? Well, the mangrove forest declined, but as these sediments began to accumulate, they built up into levees and freshwater began to pond behind them. And so the region began to transform into the freshwater wetlands, which Kakadu is known for today. Again, it was a long period that it happened over, but it was a significant climatic change that they had to adapt to. And they did. They gradually started to incorporate the freshwater environments into their, into their economies. They focused less and less on those mangroves as they became, as they declined over time, until they're all focusing almost exclusively on these freshwater environments. So, and they're present in the region today. So these groups have survived over this extended period all the way up until today. So what is it that we can learn from the actions of these groups. They survive, they survive climate change, they survive these massive sea level rises and these radically changing environment types. They did it through being flexible, they practiced flexible economies. So they weren't hanging on to old um, traditions or practices which were associated with the previous environment type. They were switching their economies to take advantage of the new environments that were coming into being in the region. They were being flexible, they were changing. So what is it that we can learn from this? How can we possibly take these lessons and apply them to our current issues? Well, we need to learn how to be flexible. We need to relearn how to be flexible. We need to relearn how to change our economies, right? We're pretty comfortable in the way that we're living at the moment because it's nice, isn't it? But if we're going to survive large-scale environmental change, we need to start making changes. We need to start changing the way that we as a society are functioning. It doesn't have to be massive. I'm not telling that you need to go and become a hunter-gatherer. That's not going to work. I mean, try it if you want. But I'm talking about small changes that, that's, that are easy to do. We can change to more sustainable dietary practices. That's easy enough. We can do it slowly. We can slowly but surely move to renewable resources. These are all small changes that we as a society can make in order to adapt to, to survive this next round of environmental change. And I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. My name's Tim. Just as an aside to Catherine's talk, there was actually an archeologist last year who decided to live as a forager in Sydney. His wife nearly went mad. <laughs> he published a book on it. He was in the newspaper. And uh, if you'd like to, Look that up. Search for Sydney Archaeologist Who Becomes Forager by Oliver Brown. 
different talk. Tonight I'm going to talk about human accelerated climate change and what we can learn from that process from history. What lessons are there from history? I'm going to examine the period about 240 years ago when Aboriginal populations here in Sydney were invaded by British colonists. We're going to look at the diets of both sets of people. We're going to look at a little bit of the history, a little bit of the social and economic impacts. We're going to see what effects climate change might have on our society today and see if there are lessons from history that can help us. Before we get into that, we need to talk about this graph and these dots. This is where it gets really exciting. Now, this, which little dot? Oh, um, this little dot over here was four years of my life. That was my PhD. It's great. Anyway, the graph I've put up is an oxygen isotope graph. And what we chart is carbon, which is on the x-axis, versus nitrogen, which is on the y-axis. This is a classic paleo dietary carbon, uh, carbon and nitrogen isotope study or set of studies. The reason we look at carbon and nitrogen is because these two stable isotopes, and that means they do not decay with time, they remain stable for a very long period of time, are able to tell us about what people and animals ate in the past. You are what you ate. When I told this to my five-year-old, he said, can you tell that I eat Vegemite? I said, no, can't tell you Vegemite, but I can tell that you like spicy salami. How can you do that? Well, for instance, if you examine the carbon values out of a set of people who lived in one location for all of their lives and generations and generations lived in the same location, then you can see an enrichment in the carbon values for those people that eat more meat. So in an Aboriginal society, what we found is that often the men in that society eat a higher percentage of meat than the women and the children. This was the case in my PhD. And so the, there's an enrichment in the carbon value for the set of people, difference in gender. The other thing you can tell, which is incredibly useful and very important in context of my talk tonight, is you with carbon, you can differentiate between the two photosynthetic cycles that most of our plants grow by. So there's carbon, there's carbon three, there's carbon four systems. Products, new world products such as maize and sweet potatoes grow on a carbon four cycle. Things like wheat grow on the carbon three cycle. So when you look at diets of people who live in different locations with different vegetation regimes, you can differentiate between those people. And archaeologists or bioarchaeologists have used that to examine migrations of people over large land scales in places like South America. We'll get into one of the studies that we've applied in Sydney with that. Now, nitrogen is also very, very useful. Nitrogen is able to allow us to differentiate between people who consume fish, seafood products, and people who don't consume seafood products. Today, very, very easy to get fish. But if you go back even just 150, 170 years ago, and you examine, say, the UK, Britain, and you looked at people who live in the Midland areas versus people who live on the coast, you can pick up the difference in the consumption of seafood patterns. Because people who lived in, say, Birmingham, which is right in the middle of England, didn't have access to fresh seafood from the coast. There was no train system in 1800 to take seafood from the coast inland. And by the time you put it in a horse and dray for two days, it had gone off. So people just simply didn't eat it. For Australia, the analysis of, of nitrogen is also very, very useful because it allows us to understand the influence of, of, of aridity on diet as well. So what we found in South Australia is that up a transect that comes from the coast and ascends all the way up into the centre, when we've looked at kangaroos, the nitrogen values increase with increasing aridity. So you're able to 
given the context, understand aspects of diet, aspects of human movement, aspects of population change, aspects of food systems, etc., etc. The graph image contains the results of numerous studies that have been overtaken by myself, uh, my peers in Flinders University in South Australia over the last three decades. These all represent Aboriginal groups, different Aboriginal groups across South Australia. And what's very clear is that there are very distinct geographic differences between the diets of the different groups. So the people who live on the Coorong have very different diets. The people who live in Adelaide who have different diets. The people who live inland, say at Murray Bridge. What we're going to talk about today, though, is New South Wales and Sydney. First, we're going to talk about the Aboriginal cultural landscape. Now, prior to 1788 and the British arriving, the Aboriginal Sydney landscape of Sydney Harbour looked as it does in these, these photographs here. We have great expanses of water, beautiful views across steep headlands, plateaus, and the evidence today of these ancient systems of land occupation and use, particularly in the last thousand years, are found archaeologically through everyday domestic sites, such as shell middens, which cling to the coasts, stone artifact sites, which are found in and around various uh, places. The nearest one to us was actually in the Quadrant site, which is just over by Broadway. We also have an awful lot of Aboriginal traditions associated with sacred ceremonies, sacred, uh, associated with traditions of spirituality, traditions of ceremony. So we understand that places, the rock art sites in and around the harbour depict pictures that may represent um, images associated with people like Bayami, who was the creator. We don't know exact, their exact use today, but we do know that they are linked. The headlands provide significant view corridors to and from places. The important thing with this is that Sydney Harbour, today you're able to float around it on a ferry, you can go into all the public lands, into all the national parks, you can, you can move where you fundamentally want to, the exception of private property. Well, back in Aboriginal or pre-British times or pre-colonial times here, Sydney Harbour was probably governed by very strict systems and laws. There were probably places where everyone was allowed to go. There were probably places where people were greatly restricted in going. There were probably headlands that were associated with ceremony in both male and female. You had to be initiated into certain levels of society to enter these places. Certain places could only be accessed at certain times of year, etc., etc. So what we're getting at is that there's a system, an ancient traditional system, where governance of society is defined by laws and traditions. And those laws and traditions really dictated where people could go, how they could use land, what resources they could gather, and what they could do. In the last thousand years, since sea levels approximated where they are today, we notice a significant change in Aboriginal society. And this change isn't just in Sydney, this change extends all the way from Sydney through Victoria and over to Adelaide. And you have this great adaptation in the economy of the peoples. We start seeing what's called bipolar reduction in stool, in, st in stone tools, in stone artifacts. So they, they change the method by which they're actually manufacturing stone artifacts. They start crushing stone, particularly quartzes, to create very, very small tools. This didn't occur until one and a half, 1,000 or so years ago, and it's seen across that whole coastal plain. In Sydney, the people here had a special adaptation. They started developing fish hooks. So they started fishing from canoes and from rock platforms using fish hooks that they manufactured out of fishing shells. Again, a very specific adaptation in the last 1,000 years or so. And again, across the whole of the east southeastern part of Australia, Aboriginal people started inhabiting what are called mound sites. So they started living against and next to fluvial systems 
and they started living there for longer periods of time. And the debris of their occupation and the plants and the materials they were using started creating mounds. So you start end up with these large organic mounds that in some cases can be several meters high, 50 meters across. Now, as archaeologists, we believe that these, con these, these changes, these adaptations in their society and their technology are a response to what's called social closure. So it's possible that Aboriginal demography, so the number of Aboriginal people living in the southern parts of Australia, increased greatly. That puts pressure on land. Social closure defines that people want to say, this bit of land is ours, this is our fixed boundary. And so you have to get more out of the piece of land you're looking in. And we believe that that drove Aboriginal societies to create new technological advances, such as the change in utilizing stone, such as the changes in procuring food and management of food, and the ability to access particular ecological systems at different times of year. Looking at Sydney Harbour and the appearance of Sydney Harbour prior to 1788, and you'd have actually ended up with a very, very different view corridor set than you have today. This image is LIDAR mapping across Sydney Harbour, and it's taken as if you were stood at ground level on Observatory Hill, which is actually the highest point in Sydney. If you stand there today, you can basically see a bit of Barangaroo up and down the harbour, a bit of the CBD. Prior to a modern development, you could have actually seen into Botany Bay from Observatory Hill. Quite remarkable. So that means that had Aboriginal people been stood up there when Captain Cook sailed into Botany Bay, it's entirely possible they were seen from Sydney. Well, here's the ships seen from Sydney. Notions such as this, which really aren't realised by people today, and I didn't realise the extent of the view corridors until the GIS people produced this modelling for us, really go to illustrate how connected landscape and country was in and across the harbour, how important such promontories and locations were, and how Aboriginal headlands with Aboriginal art sites connected with those traditions I described before really transcend the whole landscape across the Sydney area and across the Cumberland Plains, particularly between the two harbours that we can see here. What this brings us to the notion of is, were some of these places really, really special? And what I want to introduce tonight is the notion that Sydney Cove was actually a special place. This idea has been put forward by Tim Flannery and Grace Carskins in both of their books. And in, both of, in two of their books, they say that perhaps Sydney Cove was a really special place. Why was Sydney Cove chosen as a location when the British colony couldn't work out uh, how to settle in Botany Bay, sailed into the harbour and around? And both of the, those authors look at the notion that Sydney Cove comprised numerous harbours and all the bays with fresh water they saw had ang angry Aboriginal people in them, with the exception of Sydney Cove. And Sydney Cove represented a place with fresh water, a deep harbour they could berth their boats in, but with an absence of Aboriginal people. And they've then taken that and extrapolated and said, well, was Sydney Cove different? Was it treated differently by Aboriginal people? How can we find that out? Well, we're going to have a bit of a look at that in a minute. And the way we're going to look at it is from 200 George Street. So 200 George Street is located quite close to Circular Quay, and it's quite close to the water's edge. And a few years ago, it's got a brand new building on it now, and a few years ago, the older building was knocked down and developed, and we undertook archaeological excavation across that site. It was atrocious. I, we were basically excavating underneath the building as they were demolishing it above us. <laughs> it was like excavating some kind of crazy cave with large bangs and things and shaking and concrete dust and it was it was insane anyway um, so what we found is when we got down to the, the lowest levels of the archaeology we found remnant soil horizons and those remnant soil horizons clung to the sandstone bedrock that formed the shorelines of Sydney Harbour and so we 
teamed up with Dr. Michael McPhail. Mike McPhail's at ANU. He's a specialist. He's a he's a um, he specialises in analysing pollen from uh, paleo deposits, and he was able to take some of the samples and actually figure out what species were growing in there. And we found that Casarina swamp forest dominated in the tank stream of the tank of the tank stream valley or was present on stands growing along the lower reaches of the stream with ground ferns dominating damp sites. The plant fossil record filled in gaps in our knowledge of ecological conditions faced by British colonists and the landscape previously occupied and shaped by the Aboriginal people whose country included Sydney Cove. We questioned whether the shrub dominated understories that now characterize remnant scarifal forests and around Sydney Harbour are actually descendants of pre-1788 vegetation or the result of a decreased firing frequency since 1788. So in his study, we found this significant change in Sydney Cove's ecology compared to what we see around Sydney Harbour Day and what's mapped by the ecologists today. We're questioning why is that? We're only talking about 240 years. If this is a result of firing frequency change, then it could explain why all the grasses and shrubs that changed and, and disappeared since 1788 was very, very rapid. What was apparent at 200 George Street is that Aboriginal land management farming practices did not holistically clear the landscape of all its understory. Perhaps firing regimes in the Trankstream Valley were focused, small scale and targeted specific land areas for specific traditional and cultural reasons, following key principles, including the control of fire intensity, the time of year, the prevailing weather, social necessities, the cultivation cycles of key flora or mosaic burning, the results provide ecological evidence to underpin those theories that have been put forward to suggest that Sydney Cove was a special landscape and a different landscape for Aboriginal people. However, 26th of January, we all know the date. Well, it wasn't the 26th of January, but we won't argue that one a second. 1788, the first fleet arrives in Sydney Cove. They're formally invading the traditional lands of the Gadigal people and they established the first British colony in Australia. There was an urgent need to obtain wood, water, shelter, and it meant the vegetation growing around Sydney Cove and along the Tankstream Valley was destroyed before specific botanical details were recorded. When the British arrived here, they believed themselves to be masters of the environment. We're talking height of empire, we're talking the Industrial Revolution, we're talking the British going out all across the world and imposing might. There is an irony, of course, with Britain leaving Europe at the minute. <laughs> And perhaps it's the end of that cycle. Being Welsh myself, I feel I can make such comments. <laughs> they arrive here and they think, we've got this. We can do this. We can just take over this area. We can grow foods. We can plant as we need. We will obtain the water we need. We'll obtain the resources we need. We'll establish this colony. There's no one here. We can do as we want. They quickly found that wasn't correct. They quickly found that they didn't have a great source of water. They quickly found they couldn't grow anything in Sydney. Stephen's dunes that he mentioned aren't particularly fertile and don't grow crops too well. That drove the immediate need to colonise further land. It drove the pattern of colonisation that we see all through and across Sydney and up to Gosford. So obviously in 1788, Philip and his crew float up, sail up the Parramatta River. They establish Rose Hill, where Old Government House now sits. They find the Crescent, they name the hill, they establish Experimental Farm. They start farming on those alluvial plains because they realise that they can actually grow crops in that area. But being masters of everything, they tried to plant British crops, British 
British people often don't do too well here in 40 degrees and their crops don't do, do too well here in 40 degrees either. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But whilst they struggled very, very early on, they had a significant impact on the local Aboriginal population. Just think about the process of people coming in today and saying, you can't access that piece of land anymore. You can't go to that area anymore. You can no longer obtain fish from the harbour anymore. You can no longer access that area that's special. So the British stopped the Aboriginal people accessing land. They stopped their access to food. They ate the harbour dry, as it were, of fish, or they ate all the fish out of the harbour. They ate all the shellfish out of the harbour. They stripped the resources of Sydney Cove and in and around Sydney Cove very, very quickly. They also introduced diseases to the colony. It's widely reported of the smallpox epidemic and the result, the consequent result on the Aboriginal population. But what's probably not as well known are the social impacts in addition to those economic and disease impacts. The social impacts would have been reverberated around Aboriginal society. Aboriginal people had such complex mechanisms that defined where they needed to go at certain times of the year to access certain resources, and those systems suddenly disappear or they're denied to them. The rumour goes out that these people have arrived and are taking land. These, these stories filtrate and go inland. They go all across the state. They go to places like South Australia. So in the traditions of South Australia, they have, prior to 1836 when South Australia was founded, they have this a tradition of a wind, it's called a black wind, coming down the Murray River system. And the Aboriginal people are terrified that it's some kind of spirit that's coming down. They don't, little do they realise it's actually colonisation happening over in New South Wales. The consequence is that all of the systems, all of those traditional systems, coupled with depopulation, coupled with access to food, is fundamentally cataclysmic. And we're going to talk about that in the context of what it means today. Now, what I do want to talk about is what the British did in response to not being able to grow wheat in Sydney. And the way we did and the way we examined that was to look at Old Sydney Burial Ground. Now, hopefully all of you know about Old Sydney Burial Ground, Town Hall. Underneath Town Hall, when you stand on the steps, you're standing on a very, very large burial ground. And over time, and at certain points in the last 20 years, works to Town Hall have necessitated archaeological excavation of some of the burials. And you can see the different burial cuts in the photograph on the left. You can see the arrangements of coffins. And each of those coffins contains skeletal, uh, skeletal material related to early colonists. Now, from a bioarchaeologist's point of view, Sydney Burial Ground is very, very important because of its short period of operation and the fact it was the principal burial ground for most people who died in the colony. Its short, burial, its short operation period between 1792 and 1820 means that the majority of people who were buried there were not born in New South Wales. That means that within their bones and teeth, they should have stabilised isotope values reflective and representative of where they originally came from. If they've been living here for a decent period of time, the collagen turnover in their bones means that they should have changed their bones isotopic signature to reflect what they were eating here. So if we contrast the teeth which do not change against the bones which do change, we can see if they've changed their diet in a line with those aspects that I was discussing on an earlier slide. So have they changed the percentage of seafood they ate? Have they changed the percentages of meat they ate? And have they changed whether they ate C3 or C4 plants? So I was asked by the team doing the latest excavations to look at the isotopes from Old Sydney Burial Ground. And one of the most amazing things we found 
was that Sydney had this very, very unusual diet, which is denoted by this little red dot over here on the bottom right-hand side of the graph. Now, I've illustrated a couple of other diets that exist in and around the world, and the, the really crazy one from a dietary point of view is the purple dot in the bottom right-hand corner, which has a very, very low nitrogen value and a very, very depleted carbon value. And this is reflective of the Irish potato famine and the Irish people's need to consume a very, very strict vegetarian diet of maize that was brought in from America. The Adelaidean diet, when we've analyzed an early historic burial ground from Adelaide, is the little blue dot, and it's pretty much smack center in the graph. And it's very, very similar to diets from the Midlands in the UK, with the exception is that they're eating possibly a little less meat than the people from the Midlands in the UK. Sydney's unusual diet, we just couldn't explain it initially. We were expecting a value near the Adelaidean diet, up over in the middle of the graph. But for some reason, it was shifted all the way down here. We could account for the difference in nitrogen by the fact perhaps they weren't eating seafood. There's none left in the harbour to eat. They've eaten it all. But what we couldn't account was why the carbon value had shifted so much. It was synonymous with eating a C4 diet, a new world diet, a diet based on maize. So one of the team was a historian, Mr. Nick Pitt. And uh, Mr. Pitt said, well, we can look at that. And so he went to the government records and he sat and sifted through the government records for years and years and years of records, looking at what was grown here. And as you can see in this graph, it became abundantly clear that the colony here decided to grow something other than the traditional plants that they found and brought with them from the UK. They started to grow maize. Maize was seen as a lower class food. It was seen as an animal food, but out of necessity as a consequence of coming to Australia and not being able to grow things in the infertile soils, they realized they needed to supplement their diets with something that was reliable. So they ate maize. They grew it in vast quantities and everyone ate it initially. Over time, we end up with records that show that by the 1820s, the better off society classes of people in Sydney decided they didn't want to eat maize anymore and were buying and basically consuming just the wheat products. But maize remained a staple of soldiers and convicts and emancipated convicts. And that's indeed what was shown up in that little Sydney diet, that little Sydney dot. So it just goes to show you are what you eat and the response of the British was quite telling, quite telling in terms of the historical record and quite telling in the fact that the people actually had to bring new products to this country and had to grow new, new products. And what we're gonna do is round this around to the topic of tonight. And what is the actual consequence of climate change? What, was the cons what, was the, um, what is the consequence of the accelerated climate changes that have been described by the two speakers tonight? They come in three forms, loss of viable land. If sea levels go up, we don't have land to live on. But we also have a significant issue in terms of food security. We're currently in a massive drought yet again, and farmers are finding it difficult to grow crops. We also have another issue, which has been quite prevalent in the news recently. We have the issue of loss of species. So Australia apparently is leading the world in loss of species. And what does that mean? What can we actually do about it? Well. First of all, what we're going to do is just examine the effects of actual sea level change. You've heard tonight about how sea levels might go up a metre. But the question is, do you actually know what that means? Would you like to see what that means? You would. I did not do this modelling. If we all go to coastalrisk.com.au, 
they offer mapping that you can play with and it's based on what's called a digital elevation model so they've used lidar to map the sydney basin and you have a little slider and you can decide how high you want sea level to go yourself the coastline is obviously we know where the coastline is everywhere blue is what happens if you rise sea level the mean high tide by one meter just one meter you can play with this up to 10 meters we won't do that because we don't want to scare you too much let's have a look at some parts of sydney all right, this is where I live. This is where we are now. This is Blackwater Bay. This is the fish markets. Um, Bridge Road here, underwater. Can't drive down Bridge Road anymore. Can't get into Piermont. Uh-oh, tram sheds have gone. Baywalk's gone. That's a bit of a shame. The, uh, the, the good news, though, is that the people who have their boats in this big, uh, big marina up here and in the boat shed don't have to worry about getting them in and out anymore because they can just float them straight into the water. Um, what's, what's really concerning is that the low, currently tidal canals that run inland directly from our harbour, and you can see it just is underwater permanently. Who likes getting, getting home at night on time when they open the parallel north-south runways? Well, you can't do that anymore. It's underwater. <laughs> so, not sure what they're going to do about that, but basically half of Sydney Airport has been closed down. What happens when we go inland towards Parramatta? Well, Olympic Park disappears underwater, Parramatta River starts to flood, those ancient fluvial systems start to refill with water. This is um, the Botanic Gardens. If you go down to the Botanic Gardens at high tide now and you walk around Mrs. Macquarie's chair and you stand by the seawall about this location here, you'll actually see the water coming in. The water now comes halfway up the seawall already, so you can already see what it will be like if you uh, start to flood the footpaths there. But what's concerning is the extent of water inundation into places such as the low-lying areas around the Botanic Gardens. About a third of the Botanic Gardens is taken out. Places around the Opera House are taken out. And if you if I'd have shown the mapping around Waterloo and the bays further east are taken out. So the effect of moving or raising sea levels one meter on our land or our land mass that's viable and our public space particularly is quite devastating. We end up with all this space that we take for granted. I walk in it pretty much every day and it's gone. We don't have this landmass anymore. So the question is, what can we learn from history? What have we learned from history? Aboriginal modes of land management around the harbour appear to have been different. This can have implications for future fire management regimes and possibly reduce species extinction. So if we further examine the archaeological and the botanic records and look at what specific pieces of land need for us to manage them, perhaps we can manage those pieces of land in different ways. This can then facilitate the conservation of particular species that live in these particular habitats. We really need to better understand how Aboriginal communities managed Australia in different climatic regions, and we need to seek and adapt our management practices. We also need to consider realistic options for food security this is at a country-wide level and an APAC level. Australia may have a significant role to play in global food security. We need to investigate and search for drought-tolerant species and also saline-tolerant species. And we should probably seek Aboriginal traditional knowledge from dry climatic regions on this. The process of British colonisation demonstrates the effect of loss of land on a society and it demonstrates that it can be cataclysmic. This must be managed if we are not going to suffer significant social and economic upheaval. 
Government should be looking to anticipate loss of land and start to plan for either migration, flood or mitigation, flood prevention, or human movement, better known by our government as the Fiji solution. Neither is going to be simple or palatable, but we must start considering the effects and implications of inundation on our coastal areas. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. And, um, you know, we'll stick around for a second if anyone wants to chat a bit longer. Um, but we, we're sort of going to close the event now and, and let everyone go home and, you know, have their dinner, hopefully a vegetarian one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.